Turn in your Bibles to the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 3. As a church, we have been spending uh, time making our way through this letter. We have seen uh, again and again the author of this letter turn our attention to, uh, as we have sung this morning, the glorious Christ, and that he is to be exalted, and we've made our way to chapter 3, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 7 all the way through 19. read God's holy and authoritative word together this morning. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence Firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were the, those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. On September 2nd, 2013, Diana Nyad accomplished her goal of completing a non-stop, unassisted swim from Cuba to Florida. She completed the 110-mile swim from Havana to Key West in just under 53 hours. And you thought you did something getting ready and making it here this morning. <laughs> this was an amazing display of 
perseverance. But it was not an accomplishment without considering the dangers. Four times she attempted this and failed. On her first attempt, dangerous swells pushed her far off course and she gave up after 42 hours of swimming. On her second attempt, she had an extended asthma attack that forced her out of the water. Her third attempt was cut short due to venomous jellyfish stings. Her fourth attempt was ended due to big storms and more jellyfish stings. The victorious attempt only came when she had considered all the potential dangers and factors and planned for them. Perseverance came as she took serious the warnings for what could keep her from reaching the end. The author, the letter of Hebrews, is eager for his readers to persevere to the end. But he knows that it is crucial that they take serious the warnings in order for them to persevere to the end. Our text this morning is meant for the original readers to take serious the warnings that would keep them from persevering in their Christian life. This text is meant for these readers to consider the example that they have in the falling away and the disobedience of ancient Israel in their wilderness wanderings. This text is a warning and an exhortation for these original readers to persevere in the faith and by God's divine intention and by his perseverance and preservation of the scriptures this morning, the Holy Spirit says to us that we must take seriously the potential warnings and dangers that lie in front of us if we are to persevere in our Christian life to the end. The author says, do not be like the wilderness generation. They started off so well, but they failed, as our text says, to enter God's rest. This warning for the early church is a warning for us this morning that today we would hear God's voice and we would not harden our hearts, but that we would seriously consider what it looks like to persevere to the end. Here's our main point. The only appropriate response to the warning to endure to the end is to daily fight the fight of faith. It's the only appropriate response to this warning. We're going to tackle this main point in, in three subpoints. The first is the argument that the author makes. The argument that he gives to the original readers. He first begins with an illustration of history. 
to his argument and more illustration. This, this essentially, these words are a sermon. He's taking a portion of ancient scripture and explaining and expounding and applying it to the readers of his day. So bonus for you, you're getting a sermon of a sermon. (laughs) So the author of Hebrews, he takes the words of Psalm 95. That's what we have in verses 7 through 11. The beginning of Psalm 95 is actually a call to worship inviting the people of God to come and to give thanks and to praise God and to kneel before him, just like the one that we heard this morning. To bow down before the maker of all things who holds in his hands, it says, the depths of the earth and the peaks of the mountains. Come and worship this God of yours. And then the psalmist says in this warning that they should not harden their hearts as the generation in the wilderness did. The author chooses this psalm because these words would be very familiar to the original audience. These words from this call to worship, Psalm 95, they would have heard nearly every week as they gathered in their meetings. Undoubtedly, as they begin to read this letter and see these words, they could finish it almost by heart. So he grabs their attention with familiar words. He uses these familiar words so that he can make a connection for them because he's eager that his listeners would understand the warning that this psalm gives. Not to be like the generation in the wilderness. The generation that saw the wondrous works of God and instead of as we sung this morning, oh praise him, they doubted. Fell away in disobedience. There was rebellion and testing as we see in verse 8. So let me just remind you if uh, you have forgotten or unfamiliar with some of this rebellion and doubting from the wilderness generation. In the book of Exodus in chapter 16, the people have been miraculously delivered by the hand of God out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea and brought into the wilderness by God's wondrous hand. They have witnessed all of his works and as they are journeying on their way, they begin to complain that they do not have enough food. Exodus 16, verses 2 to 3 captures it this way. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The hunger is driving them so much they are complaining that we wish we would have just died back there. Rational thinking. So much so that they even make up this idea that they had meat pots and bread to the full. They were slaves. And they complain. What does God do? He's so gracious. He miraculously provides for them manna from heaven and quail that they may be full. Does that satisfy the people? No. 
Just in the very next chapter, Exodus 17, now they complain there is no water. This is the words recorded for us in verses 2 to 3. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Their grumbling now has turned to quarreling because of the condition that they are in. And again, they have irrational thinking and doubt God's provision. What does God do? Again, he is so kind and gracious. And commands Moses to strike the rock with his staff at Horeb. And out flows water to satisfy the thirsts of his people. They continue on their journey. And just to kind of bookend the beginning of their journey and the end. The hearts of this people has not changed. In Numbers 14 it records for us now another instance of the unbelief of God's people. They have now reached the border of the land promised to them, the land of Cana that God said would be theirs for them to enter and have their rest. And they sent spies into the land to scout it out and scope out what will be. Twelve of these spies go out for 40 days. They come back with some grapes and a report. Two of them come back and say, the land is good. We should go and take it. The Lord will be with us. Ten of them have serious doubts. The people are too strong in the land. They are overcome by fear. They compare themselves as grasshoppers to the size of those in there. And they sow doubt in to the hearts and minds of God's people. And in Numbers 14, verse 3, it says this of the people. Uh, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? They doubt. And so we see this pattern as they journey through the wilderness that they continually experience circumstances that cause them to grumble, that cause them to quarrel, that cause them to disbelieve the faithfulness of God. God's fed up with this generation. He wants to end them right then and there. But Moses pleads for their case And the Lord relents from their destruction. But he says this in Numbers 14, 22, and 23. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have yet put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. Their grumbling, their quarreling, their unbelief has brought against them the righteous wrath of God, and they shall not enter his rest. They have fallen away. One commentator I read, he, he does the math on this, 
from the number that we are given from Scripture, from the census of the adult males that departed from Egypt, 603,550. And then he adds the likely number of the adult females, those over 20 who would not enter the rest. And then he calculates that on average, 90 adults died every day for 40 years. And in their face reminder, every day that those would die and be buried in the desert, a constant reminder of the wages of sin. Do you not think that God will bring judgment on those whom he has called to be his people? See, the author of Hebrews, he highlights the danger of this apostasy, of the falling away of the congregation, because he wants his readers to take seriously this warning on how you respond to the glory and grace of God. Be watchful, he says. And so out of that illustration, he makes his point in verses 12 to 14. Verse 12, he turns and says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, brothers, that you do not fall like they did in the wilderness. Now this raises a question for us. Who is it that is in danger of falling away? And in order for us to proceed and carefully consider this warning, we need to hold together two critical doctrines that the New Testament teaches us about the Christian faith and life. The first doctrine is known as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Also sometimes called the doctrine of eternal security. This doctrine states that everyone who has been born again by the Holy Spirit of God and who has true faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will endure to the end. They will be kept by the hand of God. Jesus says this in John chapter 10. He says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's good news. That's good news. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 1. Speaking to true believers, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Every true believer in the gospel has been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee 
that they will endure to the end and acquire the inheritance that the Lord keeps for them. So, what then is the argument that we have in our text before us? Now, verse 14 helps us to answer the potential question we have in verse 12. Because verse 12 makes it seem like believers can have an evil, unbelieving heart causing them to fall away from the living God. But verse 14 then gives us some answer to that question. It says this, For we have come, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So in verse 14, we have a condition, right? The word if. That's a condition word, right? You will get this if. What is crucial for our understanding is to consider the tense of the verb that comes before that. The author says that we have come to share. This is a a a past perfect tense. It, it, it is the tense that is giving an understanding that something has been completed in the past. You with me on this? I know we're getting a little sentence structure on it, but it's helpful. That something has been completed in the past. And so the condition, if we hold to our confidence in the end, is not the condition that gets us a share in Christ. It's the condition that proves that we have a share in Christ. You tracking? So, those who endure to the end, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, we are kept in his hand, enduring to the end. When we endure to the end, we prove that we have shared in Christ. That cannot change. We have become to share. That, that word actually, come, it means to become. It actually has some indication of to be born. The initiation, the beginning of. So this condition is talking about future happenings that show a past completed experience. How do we know that we are truly sharing in Christ? We endure to the end. And it shows that reality. In 1 John 2.19, the apostle there gives us what to make of this in another way. He says, speaking of those who have fallen away, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So we hold this now as we go back to the warning that we are given. The question that has now risen in our minds then is, can and should the Christian that is assured of salvation, Jesus has us in his hand, can and should we take seriously this Warning to persevere lest we fall away from the living God. I have to confess, 
I have read these verses many times in my Christian life, and I have immediately thought, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, and take care, brothers, lest there be in you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away, and immediately thought, he's just talking to non-believers, not to me. But he says, take care, brothers. He addresses the congregation that they would take serious this warning to not fall away. So can and should the Christian take seriously this warning to be on guard against an evil, unbelieving heart leading them to fall away to the living God? And I believe that this text and many others in the New Testament say, oh, you better. This is the point that the author is making to the audience. He's highlighting the disobedience of that, that generation that was miraculously saved out of slavery. He's warning not to be like them, to consider their rebellion and their unbelief in the wilderness. And as, and as we think of that generation I think it's all too easy. I know it is for me. When I think of what they did, those, those verses that I read earlier and how they responded, I am easily ready to think, oh, how could they? I would never. When we have that thought, we should have right before our face that that red-orange hand on the crosswalk that tells us not to proceed should just flash in front of our eyes. See, we tend to view history with a moral superiority. The reality is, to those questions, how could they, I would never, the reality is, oh yes you would. Dan McManus, oh yes you would. If not for the grace of God at work in your life. Oh yes you would. If God is not actively working in our lives in gracious ways, then, oh, oh, we would be a rebellious generation. The commentator Peter O'Brien says this of the author. He strongly warns each member to be on guard, lest it be shown on the final day that the true work of divine grace had not been done in their lives. They were not of us. They went out from us. This is the warning to the congregation. This is the warning to us that we must take seriously this warning to take care. So we need to understand what what was it with that generation? What was the cause of it? And we see it. A few times here, we see it in verse 12, and then we see it in his conclusion in verse 19. They were unable to enter because of, what's it say? Unbelief, right? Unbelief. We got some work to do this morning. We need to dissect unbelief. What does that mean? What is that what does it look like? What does it, what does it feel like? What is the evil heart of unbelief? The heart that, that follows a path of apostasy, falling away from the living God. I need to know what that is. I need to know what that looks like. I need to know what that feels like if I am to take care that it doesn't happen to me. 
This is the thing we must guard against. So we need to understand what it is in order to take care. To, to, that word take care means to look out for it. We see from these words that there is a, a hardening that leads to this kind of unbelief. That there is a, a kind of a callousing over of the heart that eventually becomes an evil and unbelieving heart. So what, what is that hardening and how does it happen? Well, we have these words in verse 13. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives us. Sin, in its very nature, lies. It lies. It tells us untruth. And what is it that sin says to the heart that could harden it? Well, it tells the heart that God is not worth believing. He's not worth trusting. He's not worth relying on. Sin tells the heart lies to bring into question belief, to bring into question faith and trust in God. Sin deceives the heart and it raises to the surface questions about the truth of who God is, of what he has done, and of what he has promised. It, it, it brings into question the character of God. It tells us tells us that evil, that rebellion, it tells us that those things are more desirable than God and his promises. And when we give consideration to the thought, maybe you've heard this one before, did God actually say? The first lie whispered, when we take that question, did God actually say, and we begin to consider it, we take one foot on the path to apostasy, on the path to falling away. When we step foot there, sin is sure to follow. We begin to consider the pleasures that it presents to us. And we are deceived not seeing that it's a lie. John Owen says this, The great design of unbelief lies in making the soul negligent, careless, and slothful in the opposition of sin. And where that is attained, the whole work of faith is defeated and lust is set at liberty. What's he saying? He's saying that the gift of faith that we have, faith, trust, belief in God, is meant to be the active agent in which we fight against sin. And when we play with that question, did God actually say? We begin to doubt that faith, play with the pleasures of sin, and is set at liberty. Faith is meant to fight against Sin. Now let me, let me clarify and help us with, with a difference I believe is helpful. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. 
Faithful believers will experience doubt. We will have questions. We will have thoughts that we cannot understand and, and things of God that, that don't quite click in our minds. But when we doubt, we still can obey. When that doubt gives way to disobedience, that's unbelief. Jude, in his letter, he says, have mercy with those who doubt. So we can doubt, but don't let your doubt turn to disobedience. That's what this warning is all about. So how do we fight it? How do we fight this potential for unbelief in our life? Well, verse 12 starts with a take care. That word is a strong word. It's not like, uh, you know, just a nice fluffy, like, oh, take care today. It's like, get ready. Look out. Open your eyes. We are warned to take care, to, to perceive, to observe, to be on the lookout. What are we on the lookout for? All the deceptiveness of sin that presents lies to us, that seeks to have us put our foot on the path to apostasy. We're to look out for that which would lead us to fall away, that which would cause our hearts to become hardened and unbelieving. We must condition our hearts and our minds to be on the lookout for what would cause our hearts to be callous. How do you get a callous on your hand? Over time, right? The same repetition. Maybe it's raking the leaves and you do it for five minutes, you don't get a callus. For five hours, you get a callus. Those thoughts and that question, did God actually say, maybe this is just a little sin. Maybe I'll go a little bit. It's not really all that bad. It's just more and more developing a callus on our heart. That then when the Spirit wants to provoke, our hearts are not sensitive to His touch, but calloused over. We must be on the lookout for this and know that our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to wander. We are very tempted to believe the lies that sin presents us. Listen, the temptations that I experience are different from the temptations you experience. They are tailor-made for what my heart wants. So they look good. They are appealing to me, and they present all opportunities for me to consider, I think a little grumbling is appropriate right now. You know what? Quarreling is wrong when you're wrong, but if you're right, <laughs> that, it, like take a stand, right? Like something like that. Justifying? Oh, oh. You don't think you're creative? If you wrote down all the ways you can justify the sins you are tempted to go on, you're creative. We have all sorts of ways to justify what we want to do in these temptations and what draws us away and out into that. And but no, no, I don't think it's that bad. And no, I think, I think it, it, it'll just be for a little bit, or maybe just this one time. All those creative ways to justify that's dabbling in unbelief. And those things, those grumblings, those quarrelings, those justifyings, they are not small things. Brothers and sisters, take care. 
Because those things seek to pull you into disobedience. And the path of disobedience is a hardening of the heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care of your heart. These things come at us so subtly. And subtle is the slip that leads to the fall. They are deceptive. We are not meant to see their deception. My kids right now, they are really into learning card tricks. And they're trying to figure out all these card tricks. And the whole point of a card trick is to hide what's going on, right? To, to keep the eye from seeing what, what, what the deception is. And, and they're just learning, you know, so they, they kind of do like pick a card, put it back, and then they start to do this, and they go, oh, like, wait one second, and they turn around, and they're like, look, ah, this is your card. They're working on it. But the point is to not let the eye see what the deception is. That's what sin's doing. It's exactly what temptation does. It seeks to hide from us the lie. It doesn't come to us, you know, with a big sandwich board. Hey, I'm sin. I'm here to take you down. (laughs) It's an attractive and believable lie. And so we must learn to fight the lie. How do you fight the lie? You get filled with truth. How do you take care of your heart that is prone to wander? You become intimately involved with truth. We share in Christ if we hold to our original confidence. He's speaking of the glorious gospel that awakened your eyes to the truth. To believe in the wonders of the saving work of the Son of God on your behalf as he took all of your sins upon himself, dying on the cross for you to rescue you from sin and eternal damnation. That is glorious truth and that is what you are to daily hold on to. Listen, our experience at conversion, it's, it's not meant to be a fireworks show. Conversion is not meant to be this thing that goes off with a bang and then it's over and that was nice. When God takes a sinner and by the power of the Spirit takes the pieces of the gospel like wood, building a fire and then ignites the fire of faith in us, that is a fire that is meant to endure. It is meant to burn in your life every day. And so how do we take care of our hearts? How do we make sure that that fire of faith continues to endure? We are meant to stoke it every day. We are meant to take logs of gospel truth and throw it on that fire so it burns hotter and brighter and be warmed by it every day. Every day. Brothers and sisters, every day spend time rehearsing the rescue. 
rehearsing the rescue that saved you, the truth of the gospel that has saved your soul and glorifies this almighty God and, and do not face your day until you have been warmed by it. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. You know what a fetter is? It's like a ball and chain that we would have our hearts bound to the goodness of God, to his truth, because prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Now I'm ready for the day. Now I'm ready to take care of this day, lest there be in me an evil and unbelieving heart. Oh, no. We fight the fight of faith against the deceit of sin when we are equipped with truth. We counter the attacks of the lies of sin and temptation with truth. These lies are untruth. We get equipped with truth and we launch them like, like a submarine throws out countermeasures. When the deceit of sin and temptation comes at us, we throw back at it the promises of God of his goodness and his character and his love for us and his promise to keep us to the end. And we fight the fight of faith together. Verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Take care of your own soul and do it together. We exhort and encourage one another every day. We tell each other the promises of God, the goodness of his character. We exhort each other to see these promises, to lay hold of these promises, and to realize that they are better than the lies that sin and temptation present. Advice, correction, Encouragement from others are means by which the deception of sin can be unmasked. We need each other. Listen, friends. I need you so that I do not become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I need you. I need you in my life. To Do you know what that does for my soul when we gather each week and we sing these truths about the glorious Christ and you sing them, your voices? You know what that does for my soul? It keeps me from the deceitfulness of sin. Your encouragement, your exhortation, this is what is at stake. It's not just that we can get together each week and have some time, get to know one another and encourage one another. No, there is much at stake, and that's what the author is getting at, that we are fighting to pursue holy living that our very souls would not fall away from this living God. We need each other. This is why here at Green Tree, we make such a big deal about meaningful community. Small groups are vital in the fight of faith. They are, they are not just this idea so we can meet more people and have more friends. They're not. 
We encourage small group participation because, because they are a means by which we grow deeper in our knowledge of one another. And when we have a more intimate knowledge of one another in our lives, we know our struggles and our burdens and our temptations, and we can get real with each other. And we can exhort and encourage that our brothers and our sisters would not be deceived by sin and not be hardened in their hearts. I don't think this is too strong of a statement. We need each other so deeply so that we do not die and go to hell. That's what this warning is all about. We need each other. And he says many times in this passage, when do we need each other? Today. As long as it is called today. The point being made here is that we need to daily persevere with one another. So we have our Sunday gathering. We have our small groups. And all of us can every day exhort. You can text. You can call. You can email. Any way you can. Encourage. Exhort. Press on. Keep persevering. Love each other to the end. We take care of our own souls. We lean heavily on one another. And as the beginning of this chapter said in verse 1, we consider Jesus. Because there is one who has been faithful to the end. There is one who has gone into the wilderness and remained faithful to the end. Jesus is this one, Matthew 4 records for us, that he went into the wilderness. And just as this generation of ancient Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. And that generation didn't believe the Lord would provide for their needs, didn't believe the Lord could keep them and tested him, didn't believe the faithfulness of the Lord was worth it. And so the Lord was provoked in anger and said, they shall not enter my rest. But this Jesus was led into the wilderness and tempted for 40 days. And this Jesus was sustained by faithfulness. He believed that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus believed that man shall not put the Lord to the test, but trust him in all his ways. Jesus believed that all honor and worship is due to the Lord because Jesus is the true and better Israel, the one who is faithful to the end. Jesus was faithful through the wilderness temptation, faithful to the end, taking upon himself all the rebellion of sinful man and dying in the place of all those who would put their trust in him. And the beginning of this letter says that after making purification for sins, he sat down. He entered rest at the right hand of the majesty on high. The faithful endurance of Jesus is what we consider and what we look to, but not only as our example, 
but as the very completion of our own endurance. Because verse 14 says that we have come to share in Christ, united to him by faith. Therefore, where he has endured in the wilderness, so too will we. Those who have completely trusted and leaned on this one who was faithful to the end, we will endure. And as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. He is our example of faithful endurance and our completion of it. And so friends, the only appropriate response to this warning to endure is to daily fight the fight of faith. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. And we understand and see that this is a word that is meant to open our eyes wide. And so we ask for tender grace and mercy to follow through with what your spirit calls us to. This morning, if we are here and hearing this word and we have brought to our hearts and our minds things that we need to take care of, that we need to run from, that we need to repent of, may your spirit kindly meet us. We find that you are a God eager to draw us into your embrace of grace and love. So help us to obey because we see that it's far better. Keep our eyes to see the lies and the deceitfulness of sin and that obedience leads to a path of true joy yes. and everlasting life. Amen.